Feeling that the earth would again start to pitch and roll, I ran to the village from bench to bench. The Twenty-One Balloons, Chapter 5, A New Citizen of Krakatoa After having slept for what must have been four or five hours, I found myself being gently awakened. I opened my eyes. My body was bright red from sun and sandburn. I looked up at what I thought was a man kneeling over me, shaking my shoulder and saying in perfect English, Wake up, man, you've got to get some things on and get out of the sun. Wake up, wake up. I thought that this must be part of some delirious dream. The idea of a man who spoke English on a small volcanic island in the Pacific seemed so odd. I shut my eyes again. But as soon as I did this, I felt my shoulder again being shaken and heard this same voice which kept saying, Wake up, wake up. You've got to get in the shade. I shook my head and opened my eyes again. There was a man kneeling over me. As I sat up, he stood up. He was handing me some clothes, and he was dressed in a most unusual manner. This man wasn't a native and didn't suggest an explorer or a traveler. He looked like an overdressed aristocrat, some sort of misplaced boulevardier, lost on this seemingly desolate volcanic island. He was wearing a correctly tailored white morning suit, if you can imagine such a suit, with pinstripe pants, white ascot tie, and a white cork bowler. The suit he was urging me to put on was just the same as the one he had on, only in my size. Am I dead? I asked. Is this heaven? No, my good man, he answered. This isn't heaven. This is the Pacific island of Krakatoa. When Professor Sherman mentioned the word Krakatoa, a shudder of excitement ran through the audience. Only recently there had been news stories telling that half of Krakatoa had blown up in the greatest volcanic eruption of all time. But I always thought Krakatoa was uninhabited, I told the gentleman in the white morning suit as I started painfully to put on the clothes he was handing me. I always heard that the volcanic mountain made living on the island impossible. This is Krakatoa, all right, he said, and we who live here are most pleased that the rest of the world is still convinced that Krakatoa is uninhabited. Hurry up, put on your clothes. I had put on the white pinstriped trousers and the shirt as the gentleman handed them to me. The shirt had starched cuffs, a small white starched sticky, and a detachable wing collar. I didn't bother putting on the collar and started rolling up my sleeves. Let's go, lead on, I said. Come, come, said the gentleman from Krakatoa. You can't come and visit us like that. Is that the way you would call on respectable people in San Francisco, New York, London, or Paris? Roll down those sleeves. Put on this collar, vest, and coat. As he was saying this, he was smiling warmly to show that he meant no ill feeling, but was merely setting me straight on Krakatoa style and manners. I'll admit, he continued, that on other islands in the Pacific, it is considered quite the thing to give up shaving, forgo haircuts, and wear whatever battered white ducks and soft shirts are available. Here, we prefer a more elegant mode of life. You, sir, he said, are our first visitor. I am quite certain that you will be rather impressed with the way we live and with the various aspects of our island. I hope you will be impressed anyhow, for since we believe in keeping this place absolutely secret, I believe you will be finding yourself spending the rest of your life as our guest. While he was talking, I had obediently rolled down my sleeves. He handed me a pair of cufflinks made simply of four diamonds the size of lima beans. He handed me diamond studs with which to do up my shirt front. I attached my wing collar. He held a small mirror so that I might more easily tie my white ascot. As I donned my white bowler, I was filled with many emotions. I thought that this was without doubt the most extravagantly absurd situation in which I had ever found myself. I was also giving a large amount of thought to that remark of his about being a guest of the people of Krakatoa for life. It was with deep, mixed feelings that I assured the gentleman that I was already quite impressed. Well, come then, he said. First, I'll show you our mountain. He led me through a small forest of palm trees. The underbrush was thick and wild, quite similar to the untouched jungle life found on any Pacific island. My host walked through this in a most peculiar way. He was holding up his pant legs and gingerly picking the right spots on which to rest his feet so as not to disturb the creases in his suit. My suit being a borrowed one, I felt that I had to treat it with equal care. We must have been a funny sight. Two gentlemen in white suits and white bowlers tiptoeing through the jungle. 
Suddenly, a remarkable change took place in our surroundings. As we neared the mountain, the underbrush in the jungle became less and less bothersome, and then ceased to exist altogether. Instead of thick wild roots, giant ferns, banyan trees, and the usual webs of jungle vegetation, I found myself walking on soft green grass, which smelled and looked as though it had just been mowed. It had evidently been given all of the care of a lawn on an English estate. It was like a tropical garden in this zoo of some great capital. I was quite astounded by this and remarked about it to my host. He explained that the underbrush had been cleared everywhere except for a fridge of juggle all the way around the island. This made the island seem uninhabited by passing ships. When we were about a hundred yards from the foot of the mountain, we stopped and sat on a bench. I took the opportunity to introduce myself. My name is Professor William Waterman Sherman, I said, extending my hand. He shook hands with me and said, I am Mr. F. Mr. F what? I asked. Simply Mr. F, he said. I shall have to explain about that later. The reason I suggested that we sit down on this bench is that we are quite close to the mountain. The mountain has been quiet all morning. This is rare. It is seldom quiet for more than an hour at a time. When the mountain starts rumbling, you will feel the whole island move violently beneath you. You will find this to be quite frightening and disagreeable at first. We all did. It will take you some time to get what we call mountain legs. Mountain legs are to us what sea legs are to sailors. Many of us were sick in the same manner as a passenger gets seasick on a rough voyage when the mountains used to rumble before we got our mountain legs. I am just warning you of this phenomenon so that you won't be scared. The land is roughest near the mountain. As if this explanation had been a cue for the mountain to perform, we had no sooner left the bench and continued on than we heard a noise like muffled thunder coming seemingly from underfoot. This noise became louder and louder and the surface of the earth started to shake and roll. I ran back to the bench, lay on it, and clung to it with all my might. I looked at Mr. F. He was watching me, smiling amiably, and was calmly moving up and down with the surface of the earth like a bottle in rough water. The earth didn't crack or split beneath us at all. I thought at that time that being in Krakatoa was like riding on the back of some giant prehistoric animal. The noise could be compared to great abdominal rumblings. The surface of the earth was like some huge bit of hide, stretching and buckling over monstrous muscles and bones. Mr. F. waved me to come on. He was standing in a very casual way, as if on firm ground, except, of course, that he was moving up and down. I felt positively drunk. I fell down four times between the bench and Mr. F. To my complete shame and disgust, I became violently ill while attempting to rejoin my companion. Mr. F. helped me off the ground. He grabbed my arm with a firm grip as though he were escorting some drunk away from a lawn party. You can see now why Krakatoa was always considered unfit to live on, said Mr. F. I couldn't be more completely convinced, I groaned. That's the peculiar thing about nature, explained Mr. F. It guards its rarest treasures with greatest care. Every year on other Pacific islands, hundreds of natives lose their lives trying to bring up pearls from the floor of the sea. Man pays nature dearly for pearls. This noisy volcano on Krakatoa has frightened men away from the island for centuries. This fickle, dangerous, and fearful mountain has a mine at its feet. I am now leading you to this mine. With considerable difficulty, due altogether to my stupid inability to walk as easily as Mr. F., we reached the foot of the mountain. We were suddenly standing on a piece of ground which didn't move at all. I can assure you that I was considerably relieved. There was another bench on this motionless piece of earth, and I ran to it and sat down. I looked out over the quivering landscape and listened to the thunderous rumblings. I found I couldn't stand even to look at it for any length of time, for just the sight of this billowing lawn and the bending and bobbing palm trees almost made me ill again. Mr. F. sat beside me for a while and then suggested that we move on. He took me to a wall of the mountain behind this second bench. There appeared to be an entrance in this wall, an entrance covered up by an old wooden door from a ship. Mr. F. reached in his pocket and took out two pairs of glasses with dark lenses. You'll need these, he explained, and whatever you do, do not remove them while in the mines. I put them on. Mr. F. moved the old door to one side and asked me to follow him. I obeyed. As soon as I entered the mines, I understood why the ground above, where I had just been, didn't move. 
I understood why the walls about me didn't move, why the ceiling and ground beneath me didn't budge, and why this was a peaceful retreat in a rumbling, throbbing landscape. Ladies and gentlemen, the walls, the floor, the ceiling of this mine were hewn out of the hardest of all of nature's materials. Pure, clear, dazzling diamond. I was up to my ankles in diamond pebbles. The floor was covered with diamond boulders and diamonds as big as cobblestones. If the famous Jonker's diamond had been tossed on the brilliant floor of the Krakatoa diamond mines, it would have been as impossible to find as a grain of salt in a bag of sugar. This was diamond in its cleanest state, ready to be cut. Pure crystallized carbon, unblemished by any form of dirt or impurities. I was naturally dumbfounded. I had read about and seen pictures of the famous salt mines of Poland, the crystal caves of Bermuda. Here was a sight a thousand times more blinding, infinitely more awe-inspiring, a sight to make reality of the most imaginative fairy tale. I waited around in the diamonds, picking up great handfuls of the jewels and letting the smaller ones slip through my fingers. I juggled with two heavy diamonds the size of baseballs. I suddenly felt like a small child let loose in a candy shop. "'May I have some of these?' I asked. My voice was trembling. "'Sure,' he said. "'Fill your pockets if you wish, but come outside with me for a moment.' I eagerly stuffed my pockets and followed him out of the mine. The light in the sun outside seemed dark in comparison with the sparkling, blazing, spangled brightness inside the mine. Even without our dark glasses, it seemed as though the blue sky had suddenly turned gray. It was hard at first to distinguish any color in the tropical landscape, but then our eyes became used to the comparative darkness of sunlight, and the green grass again became green, the sky blue, and my companion's complexion took on a healthier glow. Sit down, he said, pointing to the bench nearest the mine. I have quite a bit to tell you. You may think that your landing on this island was all by accident. The only accident is that the wind blew you exactly in the direction of Krakatoa. The fact that a hungry seagull dove into your balloon, forcing you to land here, might be termed an accident, but if that hadn't happened, I would have made several holes in your balloon with this pistol. So in any case, you would have landed here, sooner or later, unless a shift in the wind had suddenly blown you off in a different direction. If you had flown over Krakatoa, you would have been the first outsider ever to do so. You would have seen that there are houses on the island. You would have seen our buildings, parks, and playgrounds. You would have told the rest of the world that there are people in Krakatoa. We wouldn't have liked that at all. A young boy, the son of Mr. B, sighted you early this morning, and I was sent to the beach with a pistol to make sure that you landed here. I was chosen because I am one of the better hunters on the island. You have seen our diamond mines, that is, you have seen one of them. There are many other unexplored plots of ground around the base of the mountain where the earth doesn't ever move. Do you understand now why you will have to remain our permanent guest? I do indeed, I assured him. Later on, after you have had time to think this all over carefully, I am convinced that you won't have any desire to leave Krakatoa at all. There is fabulous wealth and power attached to owning a share in the mines. You do own a share now, because the ownership of the mines is divided equally among all who know that they exist. We might have killed you when you landed here and kept the secret from you in that violent way. We are fortunate here in that there are no murderers among us. So now that you're here, you're automatically a citizen of Krakatoa. You own a share of the mines. If you could possibly spend the amount of money you are worth at the present cost of diamonds in other countries, you would have to spend a billion dollars a day for the rest of your life. But if you took your share of diamonds, loading them in a freighter, and carried them with you to another country, you would be making a horrible mistake. Diamonds are priced as high as they are because they are extremely rare jewels in other countries. Unloading a boatload of diamonds in any other port of the world would cause the diamond market to crash. The price of diamonds would drop to next to nothing, and your cargo would be scarcely worth more than a shipload of broken glass. Every year, the men of Krakatoa take trips to some foreign country in the world, a different country every time. I shall tell you about these trips in detail later. We buy our supplies for the year and return to Krakatoa. We each take with us one fairly small diamond, which we sell to different brokers in different big cities in the country we visit. At first, we thought it necessary to solemnly swear that we wouldn't tell anybody of the whereabouts of Krakatoa, the secrets of our diamond mines. But this wasn't at all necessary. You will find out that as soon as you go to a different country. 
you start thinking about all the fabulous wealth and diamonds you have back in Krakatoa, realize the power of diamonds in other countries, and remember that telling of Krakatoa would destroy the diamond market. You will find out that you will avoid even mention of the Pacific Ocean. Your only fear will be that you will talk in your sleep. You asked me a short while ago if you might have a few diamonds. Help yourself. It's only natural to want to carry some around your first few days here. We are so used to them that we just leave them in the mines. They're worthless to us here. We each own a fortune about 100 times as big as the treasury of the United States, but there is no place here to spend money, so we leave them where they are. This talk made me feel rather silly. I sheepishly walked to the mines and tossed back the paltry half million dollars worth of stones I had picked up. My mind was in turmoil. The excitement of my crash, the rolling of the ground, these unbelievable mines had completely exhausted me physically. The earth had stopped rolling by this time for one of its brief few daily pauses. Mr. F. pointed to an extraordinary group of houses in the distance. That is our village, she explained. We're headed that way. I was followed closely by Mr. F., who seemed to take great enjoyment in my fear of the volcanic action of the earth. When we at last stopped in front of Mr. F.'s house, I was completely worn out. Will you lead me directly to my room? I asked him. I feel I have had quite enough excitement for today. After a good night's sleep, I know that I shall be in far better condition to cope with the novelty of this fabulous island. Mr. F. kindly showed me to a room, gave me some pajamas, brought me a meal, and said good night. I thanked him, ate the meal in bed, and shortly afterward dropped off into heavy slumber.